probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to The Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me this week is... Hey, I'm Kyle Pinion, uh, editor, entertainment editor for uh, ComicsBeat.com and uh, editor-in-chief for GeekRex.com. Awesome. So yeah, listeners who have ever checked out any of the other stuff that I plug from time to time on this show, um, uh, Kyle and I are on the Geek Rex podcast when, when we get those out. So we you know talk about movies and comics and all kinds of uh, geek culture stuff, and that's always that's always super fun. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. It's always always a good time when we when we actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're a little behind, but hopefully get get some stuff out, a uh, new episode out pretty soon here. So today we are talking about uh, minute 46 of The Thing, which uh, begins with Windows asking Bennings about the keys while they're uh, locking up the, the body of the double face thing in the, uh, in the storage room. And then it ends a minute later with um, Fuchs saying, now at once, he's, he's reading from Blair's journal, he says, now at once, and then we don't know exactly what he's going to say until the next minute. <laughs> a very lame cliffhanger here. So I guess just to start out, we've got, I think that first line with uh, Windows talking about the keys is one of those kind of throw lines that feels like a throwaway line. But if, you know, if you've kind of, if you're familiar with the movie, the, the keys become kind of a, a crucial um, plot device at some point. So I think it's, it's interesting that they bring them up this early in the movie. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like a, a scene of, of foreshadowing all about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, for between the keys, between um, sort of this idea that it's going to begin to sort of set the stage for the, you know, who is the who is the monster at each time? You know, which one is the monster imitating uh, throughout the film, which is going to be kind of become the the trademark bit of the movie, which mm-hmm. is not something I think when you watch it the first time you even realize. Right. And, and then, of course, just just sort of the the stuff towards the end which we'll get to but where uh, there's like a little bit of uh of exposition dump regarding the creature itself so yeah it's it's all about setting up what's to come which is uh, kind of a makes it a compact scene in a way yeah and um actually you know you said it, it is kind of an exposition dump and that's a good good point because this um this whole kind of sequence with what's going on in the storage room as well as the meeting with Fuchs and McCready out in the the ski dozer thing it's all of this was added very late in the process. None of it's really in the script. Uh, a lot of the details are in the script in different places, but none of this was was actually in the original. So these are scenes that are some of the only ones that John Carpenter himself actually wrote. Um, so it, it's it's kind of a point in the film where we want to kind of just uh, I guess Carpenter kind of wanted to explain exactly what was going on and start and like I said, start to set the stage for what's what the movie is about to become, which is this whole kind of paranoid thing because up to this point we don't really know that it's going to imitate other people at the camp we've, we've just seen it kind of attack the dogs and and, that, and we've seen what happened at the norwegian camp but we don't really necessarily 100 percent know that somebody at the camp might already be infected this is, that's interesting so was this the subject of reshoots or or uh do, i mean was there was there a test screening at some point where somebody said ah this 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 imitation thing kind of comes out of nowhere 
I don't think it was after any kind of um, screenings. I think Carpenter was was watching kind of the rough cuts as they were coming together and just felt like felt like it wasn't entirely clear. And, and I guess, you know, I've talked about this a little bit in the past with some other folks, but I, I think, you know, it is kind of a complicated idea, especially when throughout probably 95% of the movie, the monster is not really seen. It's just this kind of ambiguous threat that anybody around them is who not who they say they are. And not that they're like, you know, hiding something or that they're, it's not even really that they're like infected with some kind of disease. It's that the alien is pretending to be somebody else. I guess that's a pretty complicated thing to have to visually portray. So I, I, I get why he felt like he needed to kind of, you know, explain it a little more clearly at a few places. No, it, it makes sense. I, uh, I so what, what point was what, what was actually added was was it the entire sequence involving uh, George and Windows or was it just the section in the ski dozer uh, where they read from Blair's journal? I th- it's both, I believe. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah, because but neither of these scenes are in the script because this kind of middle section of the movie is really, really different in the script. Um, there's a lot of uh, like like after the dog attack and all that they kind of already know that the bodies are still alive and there's there's already some some stuff going on and i want to say by this point benning's already been killed um he had two different uh he had one different death that was filmed and one that was in the script that was never filmed either that you know neither make it to the final movie and so this is carpenter's way of kind of you know using benning's this whole thing we're going to talk about this week is like using benning's death to kind of visually show exactly what's happening in a more kind of uh concise way than rather than just kind of beating around the bush i guess i almost wonder if and i have i've never read the script so i don't know uh what uh how, you know what benning's original end was mm-hmm. or how it could you know connected into the narrative itself but <laughs> i mean if you didn't have this explanation you would almost think that somehow the dog biting him on the leg somehow triggered this 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 these issues with Benning. So uh, that's I guess that, I guess it makes sense that he would try to underline that and not try and connect to unrelated things. Yeah, it is kind of funny. We've um, we've talked about in a couple um, couple earlier minutes that I looking at it this closely as I have been on the podcast, I feel like I've seen a few little subtle hints that Bennings might have gotten infected that early. Like when they're talking when they're watching the VHS tapes from the Norwegians and they're talking about flying out to the to the UFO site, Bennings is very kind of like reluctant. Like he's it seems like he's kind of trying to get them to stop watching the tape and he's saying like, you know, the weather's not good, they shouldn't fly out and there's just some stuff like that that seems like maybe cast some subtle suspicion on Banks, but then here it's like, okay, well, he obviously just gets completely taken over in a minute or two here. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. So that may have tied into kind of the way it was in the script, but in the script, his original death is, um, is much more elaborate and, um, I'll get into it in a few weeks cause it, it actually falls a little bit later in the movie in the script, but it's like a huge action set piece where they're chasing after the dogs on the ice with snowmobiles. And like, it's this, it's a big part of the script and it's just something that they didn't have the budget to do. But as of what they actually filmed originally, Bennings got killed just a little bit before this. And it's really kind of odd. I'm not sure why they did it in the first place. He was, he just kind of sees somebody wandering around near the dog kennel and goes to investigate. And then a shadowy figure from behind him comes and stabs him in the back, like very like slasher movie. 
And oh, I, weird. Yeah, Almost and, like a whodunit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I guess somebody pointed out to, to John Carpenter, like, uh, the monster wouldn't just kill him. Like, that's not really its motive. <laughs> like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and I think it just totally didn't really fit with the movie either. So, um, yeah, that was a combination of that and, and wanting to kind of sum up what's, uh, what's actually happening with the creature is why they uh, decided to build these scenes out into the movie. Maybe he was trying to work out some of those Halloween uh, habits, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can see in a lot of the we'll, – we'll talk about it some later in the week too, but there's definitely – a lot of his camera stuff is still very much – this is filmed like a slasher film in some spots, so it, it is kind of interesting that he cut out that slasher bit of the movie. Oh, yeah, sure. Hey, can I just say that uh, I, uh, I had to just laugh a little bit because in this particular minute – uh, we sure see a lot of Peter Maloney's ass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you're watching something so closely, you don't notice that kind of thing. But when you're looking at something at 60 seconds at a time and you're looking at every detail, there's a lot of butt. <laughs> yes. I'm very glad you brought that up because I have that in my notes, too. And it's especially, you know, there's this very creepy shot of this, like, bloody tentacle that's oozing out of the under, from under the blanket. And in the background, you get Peter Maloney, who's, like, bent over. Like, it's I, I, I don't think it's a mistake that that it's filmed that way because it feels almost like a, uh, it's definitely got some sexual undertones going on there. <laughs> well, well, especially by, you know, uh, the minute that follows it. For right. sure. Um, and the visuals that, that we'll talk about, but yeah, uh, I definitely a thing I noticed right away, along with his stylish uh, life preserver vest <laughs> or the vet, life preserver vest looking jacket that serves like almost no purpose at all. That sleeveless looking thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think out on, out in a place like Antarctica, I think you just want a jacket would probably be more appropriate. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's just one of those things that it's trying to visually set him apart from, from everybody else. Cause yeah. And some of the, some of the outdoor scenes, we'll get one later in the week where it's even watching the movie this closely. Sometimes I have to look and be like, okay, I think that's windows. And I think that's pump, but like, you know, they're all wearing like heavy duty winter gear and goggles. It's like, you know, kind of hard to tell every part sometimes. It is a movie of face blindness, isn't it? Like it's it, there a lot of these dudes with like similar facial hair and uh, white guys, all kind of close in age. Outside of like Wilford Brimley, uh, it's and uh, uh, old man's name uh, uh, Copper. Copper, yes, thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of those two, it gets hard to sort of tear, tear apart like who who is who here, and so I, I and you know. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, 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 become, it becomes an issue. So, yeah, I can understand why fashion-wise they would try to make this big orange ugly jacket be uh, be George's uh, <laughs> kind of takeaway. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely, um, you know, watching it this closely, and now I know who the characters are pretty well, but I'll, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, the first couple times I saw this movie, I had a real hard time, especially telling like windows and Palmer apart, like two guys with, with kind of big curly hair and, you know, stuff like that. So it's, I think it's good that there are a lot of people on the cast because it does, it, it gives a lot of possibilities later in the movie when we're trying to kind of figure out who's who and that kind of thing. But yeah, for a little while, it, it can be kind of difficult if you're not paying super close attention. <laughs> Yeah, so after after we get that uh, prolonged shot of a uh, oozy tentacle and and Peter Maloney's butt, we move outdoors to uh, uh, oh, I think it's a really nice shot of the out exterior of the camp where we kind of track over and it's like it's just super blue. I read that uh, Dean Cundy, who is the cinematographer, was looking for something 
some kind of like unique lighting for for the exterior of the camp. And so the, the those big blue light bulbs are actually for landing strips at airports. Oh, neat! Uh, yeah, so they use those just because they gave this like really strong blue hue that lit up the camp in that way without having to kind of fake it. See, I love that shot of the exterior of the camp. It's just you get that like extreme sense of like cold and isolation, and you know the nighttime has set in on this story, and it's starting to get a little darker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I frankly just like the way John Carpenter shoots scenes anyway, particularly in that sort of widescreen format. Like, I, I, we, we've lost it in recent years, but there was a time when I think he was one of the most visionary uh, visual filmmakers mm-hmm. of that, of a certain era, especially in their late seventies, early eighties. And I think he was kind of a standard bearer to where you'd see guys like even sort of cheapo filmmakers like Fred Decker trying to impersonate him with like monster squad or something where, you know, it's not like the contents of the film necessarily are in the same vein, but there's definitely an, an influence that, uh, that Carpenter has sort of leaked out among some of his, uh, horror and sci-fi brethren. Oh, definitely. And yeah, there's, I think this film in particular is really interesting from that perspective because, this is like at a turning point in his career where he's this is his first non-independent movie where he's got like, you know, a big budget backing him. And so he's able to still do that kind of, you know, experimentation. And there's still like a very kind of, you know, youthful experimentation with the with the frame and everything that, you know, that he really kind of played with, especially in early his, his early career. But he was able to kind of pull that off with a much bigger crew and, and some really talented people behind him, too. So this film is is to me kind of the pinnacle of that that style that he was able to put forth and that is like you say, very kind of, uh, influential. So, yeah, so we move into the, uh, the ski dozer where Fuchs and McCready are having, uh, you know, Fuchs is trying to explain something to McCready and McCready is not having it. He's very like irritated the whole time and just kind of like get on with it. So he starts to explain basically that it could change into anything at any time where he's talking about the, uh, the, the thing that could turn into anything that it's encountered on a million other worlds, which uh, to me is really the only time in the movie where they talk about the fact that the the creature can turn into stuff that it's encountered on other planets, which is a concept that they don't really talk about, but is one of the key things that makes the design of the monsters in this movie so interesting in that Rob Bottin had the idea that instead of it just kind of absorbing, you know, maybe like the blob or something like that, just instead of just absorbing and turning into something, it when it did that, it kind of, transformed into all kinds of different combinations of creatures that it encountered in uh in its travels through space which is you know one of the things that makes this such a unique movie is just the look and the craziness of the the creatures that we see so i thought that this line is kind of important to that that design sense yeah i mean it, it's it, it's the the mid transformation bit of the monster that mm-hmm. is probably the monster at its most terrifying and like you say it makes it makes the film particularly idiosyncratic in its creature i it's i'm hard pressed to think of a film before that uh, was able to sort of capture that same sort of metamorphosized terror. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it almost looks like it, it's in pain as it's doing that. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's kind of like this, it, it's, 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 it's not a creature of sympathy, but there's still an area in which you could sort of feel for the monster as it's trying to, uh, 
trying to do, trying to live, basically. I think that that kind of gives it a third dimension that uh, many horror films just don't have. I wanted to say, though, about mm-hmm. Blair's journal, man. Boy, that Blair sure does know a lot of stuff. <laughs> He's able to really posit this stuff real quick just through one autopsy. Yes. I, uh, I was, I was uh, there's a lot of shorthand happening there. Well, yeah, there's definitely uh, we we talked about that a lot last week with the uh, with the computer simulation and how just kind of that's a pretty pretty uh, big leap in logic there. But um, the other thing I found kind of funny about his journals is they're very kind of not flowery is not the right word, but maybe pulpy. Like it sounds like he's writing a science fiction novel in like the 1940s, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, it doesn't sound like a scientist to me. No. Well, I mean, it's, it, I don't want to say this movie has like a Prometheus problem or anything. Certainly not. But you, you start to, you start to wonder what kind of scientists are all these guys? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Blair in particular, you know, when he's talking about it, it doesn't seem like this, but then yeah, when he suddenly, when he puts pen to paper, he becomes, you know, some kind of sci-fi uh, writer or something. I don't know. It's, it just seems kind of funny to me. Some, hey, some science of the Science fiction are great. becomes science fact, Harper. It's true. It happens all the time. <laughs> so the only other thing I had, just a, a very tiny piece of trivia that I thought was weird. I'll, I'll bring up a few times over the week the, the TV version of the movie where they make some very odd changes that I can't claim to understand. Um, and one of them in this, uh, in this minute that is just totally pointless when windows is walking after he pulls the blanket back and sees the the double face monster one last time and puts it back when he's walking back over to bennings uh in the tv version there's an extra line where he's i wish they'd left this thing at the norwegian camp <laughs> and he says it just like that like it almost sounds like a kid like oh i wish we'd gone to mcdonald's for dinner <laughs> like it's it's just it was I, I thought it was funny it's just it's a weird line to include um, yeah, all TV cuts and movies. They for some reason they they'll go with like these B these B scenes or mm-hmm. these cut scenes or alternate takes. Just I guess to have a selling point, maybe at some point uh, when they aired these things initially. It's weird, man. There's like a whole history of like uh, of TV airings before the VHS era that. They, 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 there were so many different films that uh, they, they lengthened or shortened or edited in different and weird ways uh, just to like have people tune in to CBS or whatever station was airing it at the time. I, uh, you know, The Godfather being like one of the key examples mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of one of those versions. Uh, Superman 2 being another one. Uh, and it's interesting to hear that The Thing was another victim of uh, or beneficiary, depending <laughs> on the scenes, of, uh, of, of alternate versions. Yeah, it's, it's, this one is certainly one of the stranger ones I've ever seen. I mean, most of the ones I've seen, it's pretty clear why they cut and why they added some things back in just maybe to add some filler. But some stuff, I mean, th- there's another line in this one, actually, that I forgot about that as we're looking, moving over to the uh, to the ski dozer, before we cut inside, we, we hear McCready saying, is that one of Blair's journals? Right before Fuchs is like, hey, I found one of Blair's journals. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it doesn't add time it doesn't fill spe- like it does nothing at all i have no idea why why they add that kind of stuff back in it's super weird to me sometimes <laughs> sometimes editors or producers have a real low opinion of their audience very and, true uh, <laughs> i guess with the t the, the tv audience maybe they thought that was like uh 
you know, this, this is the audience of daytime television. We've got to be as obvious as possible and <laughs> as big and dramatic as possible. So maybe they were just trying to add that little extra bit of exposition, even though it literally makes no sense. No, <laughs> but it's pretty entertaining when you know the movie and you start to watch that TV version. It's uh, it's it's pretty interesting. I have a laugh every time I check it out. <laughs> um, so I think that's that's more or less everything I had kind of written down for this minute. Did you have anything else you wanted to bring up? No, you got it covered, man. Cool. All right. So um, in that case, I think we'll wrap up uh, minute 46. But in the meantime, uh, listeners always remember you can go to thethingminute.com for full show notes on every episode. So that includes links to anything that we talked about, sometimes some behind the scenes pictures, if I can find any and stuff like that. So uh, check that out if you get the chance. And in the meantime, don't forget to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minutes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. (laughs) 